the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the, let's see, Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us this midweek day. Looking forward to a conversation with retired Washington County Judge Tom Cole later in today's program. He, along with a local pastor are uh, working with Corbin University on a program, a four-year program at the uni- at uh, Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem called Paid in Full Oregon. We're going to tell you more about that. Uh, it's really a, a miraculous story of uh, two men who experience the uh, devastating loss of their daughters through violent acts of others uh, who have come because of their faith in Christ to minister to those who are incarcerated for similar crimes. So we'll get into that with Judge Cole when he joins us later this hour. Also, we'll talk with Matt Staver. He's the founder and chairman of Liberty Council. He's the president of Christians in Defense of Israel and founder and chairman of Covenant Journey on President Trump's plan to acknowledge Israel's eternal capital, Jerusalem. Now, there is something of an asterisk by that decision announced earlier today. Uh, There is a consulate in Israel. Uh, The president could simply have said, we are going to change the name from consulate to embassy, and that could have been done immediately. He signed a resolution that would allow more time uh, for the U.S. um, embassy to remain in Tel Aviv. So this is a process that's going to take a significant amount of time. In fact, a minimum of three years to find a location, to develop a secure uh, security so that when the U.S. ambassador um, uh, comes or or is, is working in Israel, he will work from the embassy in Jerusalem. When the president or the vice president visits, he will come to the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem rather than an hour away uh, in Tel Aviv. We're going to talk about all of that with Matt Staver when he joins us later in the program. We're also going to talk with Dr. Gary Frazier. He's the founder and president of Discovery Missions. He's also the author most recently of Miracle of Israel, the shocking untold story of God's love for his people. And from a different perspective, we're going to talk about the uh, implications of the decision announced by uh, the president um, from the vantage point of uh, believers and the nation of Israel as well. So all of that coming up in today's program. Well, as you probably have uh, been following, Southern California is really going through it right now. You know, you, you assume once the summer is over, the prospect of wildfires has died down dramatically. That certainly has not been the case in Southern California, where wildfires there have forced thousands to, evoc- to evacuate. Rather, uh, New blazes have erupted in Los Angeles, a series of wind-whipped file, uh, wildfires uh, that turned parts of Southern California into a smoldering scene of destruction. It continues to rage today as New Blaze erupts uh, in the, the exclusive Ridgetop neighborhood in Los Angeles. The fire erupted early on Wednesday near the uh, Getty Center, 
um, in the Sepulveda Pass area, prompting the closure of 405, the freeway. And some of you know the area well enough to know precisely what I'm referring to. In both directions, that was closed down, threatening multi-million dollar homes in the city's ritzy residential enclave of Bel Air. The blaze known as the uh, uh, Skirt Ball uh, fire was reported at 4.52 a.m. on the east side of the freeway uh, near Mulholland Drive. Um, the fire department has announced the Getty Center and the nearby Skirball Center are both on the west side of the freeway opposite the roughly 150-acre blaze, but the fire was threatening homes toward the top of that hill on the east side, and the mayor said at a news conference earlier today that mandatory evacuations have been issued for the area east of the freeway, south of uh, Mulholland Drive, west of uh, Roscoe Mayor Road, and north of Sunset Boulevard. These are days that break your heart, but these are also days that show the resilience of our city she went on to say, so the wildfires are still raging in Southern California. We had a little bit of a taste of that uh, late this summer, uh, but the scale of this being much larger in many, many homes have already been destroyed or uh, seriously damaged. So keep them in your prayers in Southern California and the firefighters who are attempting to gain some uh, control over it. As of yesterday, that was 0% contained. I haven't heard an update on the percentage of containment that they uh, have thus far, but this is a, a very difficult thing to manage, and there are those who are committed to making the attempt. Pray for their protection. Well, the House of Representatives overwhelmingly rejected an attempt to impeach President Trump after a Texas congressman forced a vote on his effort. Democratic Representative Al Green, who has uh, repeatedly called for the president's removal, introduced two articles of impeachment against Trump on Wednesday. But lawmakers immediately voted to effectively kill his resolution, with 364 voting to table it, 58 Democrats voting to move ahead. In a dramatic speech on the floor ahead of the vote, Green called Trump unfit for office and accused him of high misdemeanors. The symbolic vote has been expected to fall in the Republican-controlled House. It put uh, some lawmakers in uh, competitive districts in a tough spot by forcing them on the record about the uh, impeachment. Lawmakers didn't actually vote on the actual articles of impeachment, but on the procedural measure that would have led to a vote on them. Um, As I have said before, and this is a quote, this is not about Democrats, it's about democracy, Green wrote in a memo to his colleagues. It is not about Republicans, it's about the fate of our republic which is refreshing to hear anyone in Washington refer to our republic as a republic and not a democracy. Anyway, may everyone vote their conscience knowing that history will judge us all. Well, the problem is Green didn't have sufficient grounds for impeachment. There are specific requirements, and if those requirements are met, uh, then impeachment can move forward. Uh, Many Democrats tried to urge him not to move forward as of yet, even though they believe and want to see impeachment at some point in the future. Green has uh, discussed his intention to impeach Trump since last spring. In October, he filed impeachment articles that nearly forced a vote until House Democratic leaders persuaded him to abandon that effort. At the time, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders called the effort pathetic. In his memo to lawmakers, uh, Green didn't allege obstruction of justice or reference the ongoing investigation into the 2016 presidential campaign's connection with Russia. Instead, he highlighted Trump's supposed Association with white nationalism, neo-Nazism and hate, as well as inciting hatred and hostility as offenses worthy of impeachment. Now, they may incite uh, uh, 
violent anger, but it's not sufficient grounds under the Constitution. He said, friends, whether we like it or not, we now have a bigot in the White House who incites hatred and hostility, he wrote in a letter. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi has insisted that any impeachment effort should be put on hold until there is evidence of an impeachment, uh, an impeachable offense. And many Democrats are waiting and hopeful that that will be the case. But Mr. Green's um, uh, effort was not that um, was not that content. I want to also remind you that, well, not remind you, I want to tell you that Jim Daly, who hosts Focus on the Family, he briefly talks with Jack Phillips. He's the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop by phone on today's program. That's following the oral arguments that were heard in the Supreme Court on Tuesday. You can hear that conversation tonight at 8 when Focus on the Family is heard here on KPDQ 93.9. Uh, once again, again, Jim Daly talking with Jack Phillips, owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Again, later this hour, we're going to talk with uh, retired Judge Tom Cole. We're going to talk about Paid in Full. It's a partnership with Corbin University, a four-year program at the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem. It's an exciting program. We'll uh, let you know more about. Well, testing the resolve of Democrats, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell declared on Sunday there won't be a government shutdown this week over the question of protecting immigrants brought to the country as children, describing it as a non-emergency to be addressed Next year, there's not going to be a government shutdown, he said. It's just not going to happen, end quote. Well, House GOP leaders unveiled a short-term plan over the weekend to avert the shutdown and keep the government open through the 22nd of December. The measure would buy time for bipartisan talks on a bigger budget agreement that would uh, give the Pentagon and government agencies significant relief from a pending budget freeze. Well, Congress faces a Friday deadline to fund the government through the end of next September. Those born between 1980 and 2000 are a force to be reckoned with. Democrats and a few Republicans have suggested they may not vote for government funding without the protections of tens of thousands of young immigrants known as dreamers who are currently protected by an Obama administration program. That program is set to expire in March. Well, meanwhile, some Republicans are divided over what programs the government should pay for and how much. GOP um, Representative Carlos Corbello of Florida has joined Democrats on the immigration issue, while Senator Jeff Flake, a Republican out of Arizona, said he received commitments from party leaders in the administration to work with him on restoring dreamer protections in exchange for his vote or early on Saturday on the tax overhaul bill. The president backs the immigration safeguards despite issuing an executive order reversing the Obama-era protections, officially called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. Well, talks on a budget agreement are likely to restart this week after a setback last week when top Democrats pulled out of a meeting with the president after he attacked them on Twitter. On Sunday, McConnell insisted the GOP-controlled Congress will be able to keep the government running, calling demand for action on DACA by year's end ridiculous. I don't think the Democrats would be very smart to say that they want to shut down the government over a non-emergency that we can address any time between now and March. There's no crisis, McConnell said. Still, Republicans are not entirely unified, with GOP conservatives concerned they're being set up for a massive pre-Christmas uh, spending deal they won't like. That raises the likelihood that some Democratic votes will be needed to approve new funding to keep the government open. Well, on Sunday, White House Budget Director Mick Mulvaney 
was uh, equivocal about shutdown prospects. He said he didn't think it would happen, even with a broken system of spending. It's funny to see now that the Republicans are in charge. I think there's a group of right-wingers in the House who say they want to shut down the government. There's a group of Democrats who want to shut down the government over DACA. And there's a group of lawmakers from some of the hurricane states who want to shut down the government until they get what they want, he said. This just sheds light on the fact that the appropriations, the spending system is broken when any little group, in quotes, can sort of hold the government hostage. We need to get beyond that, Mulvaney's added. Well, we're being told that we will get beyond that, but um, only a vote uh, in the House and the Senate by Friday will tell us for sure. Well, some members of Congress are threatening, as I mentioned, to block government funding unless Congress provides amnesty to so-called dreamers. The uh, illegal aliens included in President uh, Obama's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, which the president is ending. Well, such an effort would be fundamentally flawed and would uh, only encourage even more illegal immigration, just as the 1986 amnesty in the Immigration Reform and Control Act did. So says Hans von Spakovsky, reviewing what um, responsible members of Congress um, may or may not consider doing. Well, Democrats, he writes, portray the DACA program as only benefiting those who are a few years old when they came to the United States illegally, leaving them unable to speak their native language and ignorant of their country's cultural norms. Therefore, the reasoning goes, it would be a hardship to return them to the country where they were born or the country where they, uh, their parents were born. Obama himself gave this rationale when he said DACA beneficiaries were brought to this country by their parents as infants and faced deportation to a country that they know nothing about, with a language they don't even speak. While this may be true, uh, Von Spakovsky points out, true of a small portion of the DACA population, it certainly is not true of all the aliens who received administrative amnesty. In fact, illegal aliens were eligible as long as they came to the United States before their 16th birthday and were under the age of 31 as of June of 2012. DACA also required that beneficiaries enroll in school, graduate from high school, obtain a GET certificate, or receive an honorable discharge from the military, have no conviction for a felony, significant misdemeanor, or three or more other misdemeanors, and not pose a threat to national security or public safety. However, the Obama administration appeared to routinely waive the education or its equivalent requirement as long as the illegal alien was enrolled in some kind of program. Only 49% of DACA beneficiaries have a high school education, despite the fact that a majority of them are adults. How thorough was Homeland Security vetting? Well, in February of this year, after the arrest of a DACA beneficiary for gang membership, the Department of Homeland Security admitted that at least 1,500 DACA beneficiaries had their eligibility terminated due to a criminal conviction, gang affiliation, or a criminal conviction related to gang affiliation. By August of this year, that number had surged to 2,139. In fact, based on documents obtained by Judicial Watch, It is apparent that the Obama administration used a lean and light system of background checks in which only a few randomly selected DACA applicants were ever actually vetted at all. Additionally, DACA only excluded individuals for convictions. Thus, even if a Homeland Security background investigation, which apparently was almost never done, produced substantial evidence that an illegal alien might have committed multiple crimes, the individual would still be eligible for DACA unless Homeland Security referred the violation to state or federal prosecutors and there was a conviction. DACA had had no requirement of English fluency either. In fact, the original application requested applicants to answer 
uh, whether the form had been read uh, to the individual by a translator in a language in which the applicant is fluent. The Center for Immigration Studies estimated that perhaps 24% of the DACA-eligible population fall into the functionally illiterate category, and another 46% have only basic English ability. This is a far cry from the image of DACA beneficiaries as the children who don't speak the language of and know nothing about the culture of their native countries. In fact, it seems rather that a significant percentage of DACA beneficiaries may have serious limitations in their education, experience, and English fluency that negatively affect their ability to function in American society. Well, providing amnesty to low-skilled, low-educated aliens with marginal English language ability would impose large fiscal costs on American taxpayers, resulting from increased government payouts and benefits, and would be unfair to legal immigrants who obey the law to come here. Again, uh, quoting Hans von Spakovsky, he writes that any congressional amnesty bill providing citizenship for DACA beneficiaries could significantly increase the number of aliens who will benefit unless Congress amends the sponsorship rules under federal immigration law. Providing lawful status to millions of so-called dreamers will allow the extended families of those aliens to profit from illegal conduct. The U.S. accepts about a million illegal immigrants every year, according to a recent study of the 33 million illegal immigrants. Immigrants admitted over the last 35 years, about 61% were chain migration immigrants. The average immigrant has sponsored about 3.45 additional immigrants, but for DACA beneficiaries, that number is likely to be much higher. This is because, according to an analysis by the Department of Homeland Security, 76% of the DACA beneficiaries were from Mexico. Mexican immigrants sponsor an average of 6.38 additional Legal immigrants, the highest rate of any nationally uh, nationality rather for chain migration, providing amnesty would simply attract even more uh, immigration through the uh, process of illegally entering the country would not solve the myriad of enforcement problems we have along our borders and in the interior of the country. Congress should concentrate on giving the federal government, with the assistance and help of state and local governments, the resources to enforce existing immigration laws to reduce the illegal alien population in the U.S. and stem entry into the country. Until those goals are accomplished, it's premature to even consider any DACA-type bill, which apparently will not be the case before a vote on Friday to keep the government open. Again, Hans von Spakovsky writing that DACA is not what the Democrats say it is, offering some facts to clarify. Portions of today's program are brought to you by Zero Res. And coming up next, I'm looking forward to switching gears, talking with retired Washington County Judge Tom Cole. We're going to talk about a new program, Paid in Full. It's a partnership with Corbin University, a four-year program at the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem that's going to change a lot of hearts and lives here in Oregon and across the country. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I have been looking forward to this hour uh, on this program today for quite some time, because with me in studio is retired Washington County Judge uh, Tom Cole. And we're going to talk about a program you may have read a little bit about in Christian News Northwest, Paid in Full 
Oregon. It's a partnership with uh, Corbin University, a four-year program at Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem. And I want to make sure you know all about it. I think there will be opportunities for us to support this effort, uh, beginning with prayers, and I would imagine in other ways as well. Judge Cole, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me here again. I really appreciate this this opportunity. Now, this is a miraculous program that we're going to be talking about, but not just the program itself. I think what occurred before this was even an idea to be developed is an important part of this story. And I should mention that you, in partnership uh, with a local pastor here, Rich Jones from Calvary Chapel, Hillsboro, um, are responsible for really spearheading this effort. Let's tell our listeners a little bit about your story and the loss of your daughter that really began an odyssey for you that you would not have chosen. Right. Yeah, I, I uh, became a... Uh follower of Jesus three years after I was appointed to the circuit court bench in, in Oregon, and that was on November 3rd of 2000. I had been through two marriages, uh, div- divorced twice, and had just met my third wife, who was a Christian. And I, I really didn't know what Christian, I thought I was a Christian, but she was a different sort of Christian. Mm. It really made an impact on me. She was attending uh, Calvary Chapel Worship Center in Hillsboro, and Pastor Rich Jones was the pastor there. So on November 3rd of, of uh, 2000, uh, I gave my life to Jesus, and uh, Rich was the pastor there. And then eventually, a year later, Rich married uh, Julie and me, and then he also baptized me a couple of years after that. So that's how Rich and I kind of got together. And uh, what happened later on is something that uh, you know only you know only God could ever plan. I mean, y- you would never think something mm. like this would happen, but my daughter... I was murdered on July 21st of 2006. Uh, she was brutally murdered. It was a stabbing, and, and about a year later, they caught the person that murdered her. And, uh, you know, it was only through the presence of Jesus Christ in my life that I was able to eventually forgive that man who murdered my daughter. I went and visited him in prison and, and uh, uh, spoke the gospel to him and prayed with him <clears throat> a couple of years after the trial in which he was found guilty of aggravated murder. So... So I had that uh, initial contact with him at the trial and the subsequent contact at the prison. And uh, then I wrote a book after that. And so uh, I just felt God was asking me to write a book about the drug court that I was involved in and about uh, Megan's murder and the idea of forgiveness and how that just, uh, you know, opened up healing for me and, uh, and then enabled me to write a book that God wanted me to write called Losing Megan, Finding Hope, Comfort, and Forgiveness in the Midst of Murder. And so... I wrote it, and I thought I was writing the book for uh, parents who had lost mm-hmm. loved ones by or children by tragic circumstances or families that had lost loved ones. And, and that was one of the purposes that God had. But God also had another purpose, and that was to open the doors of prison for me to go in and speak to inmates about Jesus Christ and forgiveness. And so uh, within a year or so after the book was published, I was asked to come and speak at the Oregon State Correctional Institution in Salem, uh, and they call it OSCI. And that was my first time in prison speaking to inmates, some of whom I had actually put there myself mm. <laughs> as, a, as a judge. And so uh, it just opened that door. Yeah. And we actually talked about your book when it first came out, and I would encourage people to uh, to pick that up and read it. It's it's a remarkable story of of transformation, the power of God to to bring you through the most difficult circumstance any of us can imagine in a way that's unexpected. And then, as you mentioned, uh, Rich Jones, uh, whom you had a relationship with when you and your wife were uh, were married early on, 
he lost his daughter, Nicole. It's just been a couple of years ago. And you were able to extend the comfort that you had experienced in Christ uh, to he and his wife as they went through that same circumstance. Yeah, his daughter, Nicole, was murdered on August 19th of 2015. She was also stabbed to death, and she was born in the same year my daughter, Megan, was. And so uh, Rich and I had not seen much of each other. My wife and I had gone to another another church. We were involved in another church. And so I contacted Rich as soon as I heard that, and, and Rich and I got together. And so uh, we were able to get together every couple of weeks until the trial last summer when uh, they, they, they eventually murdered the, or charged the man who murdered Nicole with uh, aggravated murder, and he was tried last July, was found guilty. Uh, so <clears throat> what I was able to do with Rich is I was able to kind of, as a judge, I was able to give him a little bit of the background of what a murder trial was about because I had handled several murder trials myself, and so I was able to be a resource for mm-hmm. him and also just a prayer uh, supporter for him too, and and because we had you know gone through the same thing, and so that 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 uh, verse Second Corinthians chapter one verses three through four, I'll sort of paraphrase it. It talks about we worship a God who comforts us, and the comfort we receive during the trials that we go through, we are then able to comfort other people who are going through those same trials. So it was a, it was just like the perfect example of what Second uh, Corinthians. Chapter chapter one verses three through four is all about, and so I was able to offer that comfort to Rich during that time period too. So, yeah, and I used to go speak at his church, and and and, and before that happened, and who would have ever thought mm. that, that we would have that commonality down the road? Now, one would imagine your two fathers. You've lost their do- your daughters to brutal murder. The last thing one would think that either of you would be interested in would be to reach out to a population that's responsible for that kind of violent crime and for other types of crime, that you would be drawn to those who had had been um, labeled as offenders uh, and to try to minister to them in a way that would give them hope and and facilitate transformation. Uh, The two of you had reconnected as fathers who've lost their daughters. How did you go from that to men who are thinking about the population of men who are incarcerated and providing them a way to get the kind of um, uh, Christ-centered education that will transform their future. God always give us, gives us a purpose for pain, and so that is the purpose that Rich and I have and the pain that we have gone through, is to be able to transfer that back into the Oregon uh, Correctional uh, Department and, and offer that type of opportunity to the inmates that are there. When, when I started going uh, to visit prisons uh, around the country, uh, I was speaking in prisons, I was drawn to a prison in Louisiana called Angola Prison. And <clears throat> Angola had the reputation of being, at one point, being the most violent, bloodiest, maximum security prison in the United States. As I understand it, in one year there were 20 inmates that were murdered uh, and a couple of guards. Uh, so I heard about it. I heard about the transformation. I contacted the warden down there, and eventually he invited me to come down, at, or allowed me to come down and speak to the inmates there. Angola sits on about 18,000 acres in Louisiana. Uh, it has the main prison, which houses about 2,300 inmates, and then five separate prisons on the grounds also uh, for a total now of about 6,000 inmates. So I went down there. I was able to see what what had happened there. And what happened is that... Uh, Warden Kane had asked the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary to come in and plant a four-year seminary program 
in Angola prison. And so that's what happened. That happened in 1995. They had their first graduates in 1999. And after that, the the warden began to see a huge change in the culture at Angola prison from being one of the most violent to now one of the safest. So my wife and I were actually there in October of 2013, experienced it firsthand. So I went down there a couple of times after that. And one day I was, one time I was down there and we were getting ready to leave. I was with another pastor and his associate pastor there. And we had prayed for the warden in his office. And as we were getting up, uh, ready to leave, uh, the warden says, no, 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 sit down. I want to pray for you guys. Hmm. And so we didn't have a clue what he was going to be doing. He says, bow your heads. And so uh, we bowed our heads and this is the prayer he prayed. He said, dear Lord, don't let these men rest until they get a Bible college in the Oregon Department of Corrections. Amen. And so, 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 so I really thank you, Warden, for giving me that burden. I really appreciated that. So, so I came back, and, and I came back, and what I did is I started to contact people uh, to see if there was a possibility. Well, that really is remarkable. We'll continue that story in just a few moments, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about paid in full Oregon. More on that in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. With me in studio is um, retired Washington County Judge Tom Cole, and we're talking about a new program, Paid in Full Oregon. Um, which is a, a tremendous partnership with Corbin University. It's a four-year program at the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem, which really doesn't do justice to what it will actually do. But we're painting a bit of the history and a picture of what this program will do for inmates in um, in the state of Oregon. So you have a prayer with the uh, warden in Angola, and he's praying, Lord, don't <laughs> let these men rest until there's a similar program at the Oregon State Penitentiary. Had that even crossed your mind before he made that suggestion in prayer? No, I never thought that would ever be a possibility here. It's actually going to be at the Oregon State Correctional Institution. I apologize, which is, yeah, yeah. The Oregon State Penitentiary is, I think, the oldest prison here in Oregon. We've got 14. Uh, but OSCI, Oregon State Correctional Institution, is just south of Salem. It's on the way to uh, Detroit Lake, I think, out uh, Route 22 there. Yeah, so, so uh, I ended up... <coughs> um, Gathering a group of people, we went down to Angola. The people that went with me were a couple of state senators, a couple of state representatives, somebody from the attorney general's office, somebody from the criminal justice commission, and a few other people. There were 12 of us total that went down to Angola on a field trip to see what it was like. And so that kind of inspired some of those people. Uh, Also, we came back. That was in January of 2015. And I just continued to take one step after another. I didn't know what I was doing. God was putting people in front of me that knew what they were doing because I couldn't do this on my own. So uh, eventually we found out that the (coughs) uh, Department of Corrections was willing to consider a college coming in. Corbin University is right next door Mm -hmm. uh, within a few miles of uh, OSCI. Uh, We contacted them. They were interested. And so we've been meeting over the last uh, probably year or so with Corbin officials and DOC officials. And uh, now we have a plan that is getting traction. Uh, We formed a nonprofit um, uh, organization in February, which is called Paid in Full Oregon. Uh, The website is paidinfulloregon.org. If people want to go there, it's just a landing page now. We have a donate button there, but it tells a little bit about the program. Today, we also launched our first Facebook uh, for Paid in Full Oregon. Also, it's Paid in Full 
uh, facebook.com slash forward slash paid in full Oregon. And that's another way to get to the website, but we also have a, that, that Facebook page too. So uh, we are in the process now of uh, putting together um, a team uh, to uh, help to raise money for the organization. It's going to cost probably $150,000 for initial startup costs. The hard cost for, uh, we'll need 30 computers and 30 tablets and six printers. Uh, we're going to need some li- a library also. Uh, we'll be able to use part of Corbin University's library. But ultimately, the men who attend the college at OSCI will have the same four-year degree that any mm-hmm. student does attending on campus at Corbin University. So it's going to be the same type of degree. They're developing a a curriculum now for uh, the class this September. And uh, it will probably be done within the next three or four months. One of the major components of the curriculum is going to be spirituality and, and counseling. So the men who end up graduating from the college inside the prison uh, will be sent back into the prison system in Oregon. They're not going to be released, or there's going to to be a requirement that they have at least 10 years left on their sentence uh, before they can attend the college. And that's so that when it takes four years to uh, get their degree at OSCI, then they're going to have to give back that to uh, to the prison system. They're going to have to go back. They will become uh, for example, like chaplain's assistants, uh, they will walk the tiers, they will mentor other men in the prison system, uh, they will be able to lead some some church services in prison, uh, they will be counselors to other men. I mean, they're not going to take the place of a counselor, but they're going to be a supplement to the counselor. So the requirement for them to go back into prison, into the deep, dark places in our prison system and with their changed hearts, hopefully, and they will then be able to help change the hearts of other people, other men who are in the prison system in Oregon. And as you pointed out, we've seen that uh, successfully happen in Angola. There's also Texas, Georgia, other states have seen dramatic outcomes uh, with their inmates who've been in similar or had similar opportunities. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's it, the statistics, uh, there, there is a book uh, published by Baylor University called the Angola Prison Seminary that has a lot of statistics on the positive effect that the uh, seminary had at Angola Prison, and also they've done some t- statistical work at Darrington Prison in Texas, which is near Houston. So uh, the statistics show that it works, that it actually reduces the uh, assault on assault or assault on inmate uh, cases in the prison system, the assault on uh, prison uh, guards or corrections officials. Uh, so, so it really does make it really does make a difference. Yeah. <clears throat> now, I know that most of our listeners, hearing you tell this story from the background that you have walked through, uh, understand how God uh, gives a heart of compassion and love where bitterness, anger, and hatred would otherwise um, reside. But I'm guessing there are some listeners hearing you describe what you and Pastor Rich Jones have been through and what you're currently working on who don't understand at all. How is this even possible? Why aren't you angry and bitter? Why don't you want to avoid uh, men who are guilty of violent crimes like the crimes that were perpetrated against your daughters? How is it that you would come to focus your attention on a population that would remind you of, uh, of what happened in your own family? Can you explain to those listening who may not understand the grace of God who may not understand the, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit and how 
um, he can prevent us from having a root of bitterness and can give us purpose in pain. Yeah, that's, you know, it, it's an easy answer and it's a complicated answer. Mm-hmm. The, the, the easy answer is I never could have done that. I never could have done that on my own. There is no way that I ever would have had the power, the fortitude to forgive somebody who brutally, brutally murdered my daughter. But with the power and presence of Jesus Christ in my heart, he started to just enable me to forgive the person who murdered my daughter before I even knew his name. I mean, that forgiveness just started to to well up inside me. Um, I had so much sorrow and I had so much hopelessness and despair at the time of Megan's murder. There was there wasn't any real any room mm. for, for for hatred or anger uh, or resentment. There uh, there was only room for what I had, and so. But Jesus was able to fill that back up then with 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 hope uh, that uh, uh, you know my daughter was with was with Jesus and uh, you know hope that uh, uh, that there would be a better day you know and and so it just sort of uh, when it, when I when I ended up writing the book and going to prison the 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 impact that my talk had that God had through me on the prisoners that were there when I first had my first um, uh, talk at, at OSCI really blessed me it was it was it, i could just tell that it meant something to the guys i was mm. talking to they came up we we hugged which was against the rules you're not supposed to <laughs> hug in, in prison and it was just one of those moments in time where gosh this is where god wants me to be and and i know that these men are getting blessed by the story of jesus christ and forgiveness you know in my life so so the easy answer was all Jesus, and the hard answer is probably it was all Jesus, yeah. too. You know, so, <laughs> that yeah. is the answer. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, that is the answer. Yeah. Now, I had, uh, hadn't had planned on asking you to stay for our next segment, um, but I, I want to make sure our listeners know um, how they can find out more, what we can do to help support this effort. So if you'd stay with us a few more mo- moments, we have uh, news at the top of the hour, then we'll be back. Again, we're talking with retired uh, Judge uh, Tom Cole from Washington County. The the uh, ministry we're talking about is paid in full, and we'll tell you more about it when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. With me in studio is uh, retired Washington County Judge Tom Cole. We're continuing a conversation we began in the first hour. And if you're just joining us and you'd like to hear the conversation in full, let me encourage you to go to our podcast where you can hear uh, this um, conversation in its entirety. You just go to kpdq.com, look for the Georgine Rice Show uh, page, and there you can uh, connect with uh, this conversation and others as well. We're talking about a program paid in full Oregon. That is a, a nonprofit founded by a retired senior judge, Tom Cole, my guest, and Pastor Rich Jones, both have experienced the pain of losing their daughters to brutal murder. And their vision is to impact inmates spiritually, a spiritual, I should say spirituality, transforming their pain into purpose. And this is a program that would provide a, an opportunity for a four year degree uh, program. Now, this is an exciting uh, prospect you were mentioning. I'm not sure if it was on the air or during one of our breaks that this is uh, you're hoping this will begin um, in 2018. Yes. Uh, our plan right now is to start classes in September of uh, 2018 next year. Uh, we have uh, we're in the process of entering into a, a memorandum of understanding uh, with Corbin University. They will be supplying the professors. We will be using uh, their accreditation uh, for the degrees that the men will receive at the OSCI. 
And so uh, that's the intent right now. We're going to have 25 uh, people initially, uh, and that's probably what we're going to have each year. until. Mm -hmm. uh, so we'll have maybe 100, and when we get into our fourth year, we'll have 100 students in the program. There'll be some attrition, too. Some of the, some of the men will probably fall out. Uh, so that's the plan uh, to start in 2018 to have our first graduating class four years after that. So uh, we're, we're really hopeful that we'll be able to get off the ground and get moving on this uh, as, as soon as possible. The idea is uh, we need to, you know, we need to do some, some, some grant writing and, and, and seek some funds. And our, our website uh, uh, at uh, HaydenfulOregon.org org, has a donate button there. Uh, and if anybody would want to donate any sort of funds at all. It's it's real easy. You just push on the donate button and I believe it's uh PayPal that's in mm -hmm. there. So yeah, but most of all we need we need prayer support. You know, we're just in the we're in, we're right in the beginning stages now and whatever anybody could do by way of prayer support, uh, uh that the that God would God knows who's gonna who the first twenty five guys are gonna be and we, we wanna we just wanna be able to, to uh give them that hope. Burl uh, Kane, the warden at Angola, uh, once said that the greatest enemy of a prison inmate is lack of hope. And I think what our program does, will do, it will give the inmates hope. It will give them an opportunity to get a four-year degree that would ne never otherwise be available mm -hmm. in the Oregon Department of Corrections. Uh, as I said earlier, they're going to be re they're going to need to have at least ten years on their prison sentence remaining before we can accept them into the program. And that's because we want them to give back. Uh, to their community, the community in the prison, and uh, you know, help counsel, uh, be peer uh, mentors uh, to to their their fellow inmates there, and and to really make an impact. You know, eventually when they get out, we'll see we'll see a huge change too when they come out of prison uh, with their four year college degree and get back into their communities again. Uh, it's just going to be, I think, remarkable. The 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 rate of recidivism is generally uh, 30, 35 percent or something like that. People with degrees, it cuts it down to nine percent, just mm. like that. So, so we're going to see a huge return on investment when they get back into uh, the communities. Also, tell us a little bit about the application process. How does an inmate? Um, how do they get accepted into the program? Yeah, so we're uh, Corbin University is a Christian faith-based university, and so. Uh, they know when they apply that they're going to have to take courses uh, that involve theology, uh, maybe some Greek, hermeneutics, uh, th those type of courses that are going to be offered by Corbin along with uh, history and math and science and those type of things. So they'd get sort of like a general university degree mm -hmm. with, a major, with a minor component of theology and counseling. So that's what's going to be offered. Uh, the application process is going to be opened up to every man, uh, every male in the Oregon Department of Corrections. Uh, obviously, uh, right now, it would be nice down the road to have a uh, Bible college or program for women also. But right now, the, the resources uh, with, there are, I think, a little over 14,000 uh, people in prison in Oregon, of which around 12,000 are, are men. Mm. So that's where we're directing mm -hmm. our focus now to have the greatest impact you know, that we can have for the dollar there. Down the road, it would be great to have a women's uh, university also at Coffee Creek. That's our, that's our only women's prison in Oregon. So the application process is going to be for everybody in the, in, the, in, the, in the prison system, all 13 prisons, male prisons. Uh, there are going to be no prohibitions on any, I mean, there's gonna, we can't discriminate uh, against anybody 
a, you know, a Jew or a Muslim or a Mormon or a Scientologist. Everybody has an opportunity to apply uh, to attend the college program. There, there would be no uh, reason to prohibit somebody from applying based upon religion mm -hmm. or anything like that at all. So it's wide open. Uh, atheists, agnostics, uh, anybody can apply. So the only thing they're going to need is they're going to need a, a basic reading ability uh, to get into uh, the college, sort of a basic uh, high school type of reading ability uh, that would enable them to, to apply to the college. So they'll need to be, <clears throat> the application process is going to be um, initially reviewed by the superintendents of each prison uh, and by the chaplains that are there. Uh, they will be the ones that will initially have the, the right to say yes or no on somebody wanting to apply to the college. They're going to have to have a good disciplinary history uh, and be good citizens, model citizens in the uh, prison system before they can apply. Uh, so initially they would be uh, screened by the Department of Corrections. Next, then they would be screened by Corbin University, uh, the people that are going to be actually teaching them. And then we would have the final say on whether somebody comes in or not, uh, paid in full Oregon. They call it PIFO. Uh, so uh, if, if they've been approved by the DOC and if they've been approved by Corbin, there would be really no reason for us not to approve them. It would just be a rubber stamp. You know, we'd say, yes, yes, you're accepted. So that's sort of the application process now. So then they would be transferred from whatever prison they're at in, uh, to uh, OSCI, and they would spend the next four years uh, studying there at OSCI. That it really is a remarkable uh, program, again, when you consider the, what motivated you to begin to pursue a program like this in the state of Oregon and the fact that um, at least 25 in this first year are going to have the opportunity to get a college education that is provided to them. It's paid in full. Um, and they're going to have exposure to uh, the gospel along the way. What do you hope ultimately will be the result for the individuals who are part of this this program? Well, we hope that there'll be a transformation, that their heart will be transformed, that Jesus Christ will, will grab a hold of them and, 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 and uh, uh, give them the hope that they typically wouldn't have in a situation mm -hmm. like that. So that, that's our hope. And when, when they're individually transformed, they go back in. We're going to send them out like missionaries, uh, so in, in groups of two or four back to other prisons across the state of Oregon that will go there and will we'll, we'll serve, will we'll serve their fellow inmates. Because I believe, you know, when we're saved, we're saved to serve. You know, <laughs> that's what Jesus wants us to do. And so, uh, and the same applies in prison too. When those guys are saved in prison, uh, he wants them to serve. And so that's going to be one of our primary focuses too, is that these men who are in the process of going to college there, who graduate there will serve the rest of their inmates when they get sent, when they get sent out, sent out as missionaries to, to other prisons. Well, we really want to encourage our listeners to follow the progress of Paid in Full Oregon. There's an opportunity to become a donor and to follow the progress through this process of establishing a program that's um, there's nothing like it here in the state of Oregon and has the potential to impact. Uh, corrections facilities all across the state. Uh, Judge Cole, thank you so much uh, for following Christ and listening to his um, his uh, call in your life, you along with Pastor Jones. And I'm looking forward to great things through this program as you uh, continue to move forward. We will keep you updated. We will invite you to sing at our first class. I'll we... <laughs> do it. I will do it. <laughs> Again, that's paid in full, org or the Facebook page by the same name. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you probably know by now, President Donald Trump affirmed that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Now, he affirmed what's already the fact. And he promised to begin the process of relocating the U.S. Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv, about 100 miles from Jerusalem, to Jerusalem. Now, this is a big deal for a number of reasons, although, interestingly enough, there was the Jerusalem Embassy Act that was passed in 1995 by both the Senate and the House. Uh, and in that uh, act, uh, the U.S. was called upon to move the U.S. Embassy. Every president from Bush... Um, Obama and now President Trump have said this is what we intend to do. Only Donald Trump actually did it. Well, here to talk with us about that is Matt Staver. He's the founder and chairman of Liberty Council, president of Christians in Defense of Israel and founder and chairman of Covenant Journey on the president's plan to acknowledge Israel's eternal capital. Matt Staver, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure to be with you. It's a historic moment. Well, it really is. You know, it's it's surprising because, as I mentioned a moment ago, it's not a new thing for a sitting president of the United States or a candidate, for that matter, to say, yes, my plan is to move the embassy, the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv uh, to Jerusalem. This is just the first president who's actually done it. Yeah, it's not a new thing to have this in Congress because we have the act since ni- uh, 1995. And it's not a new thing for politicians to promise this. But what it is is a new thing for politicians to actually be true to their promise. And Donald Trump is the first one to do that. He promised to do this when he was a campaign, when he was running. Uh, So did uh, President George W. Bush promise to do it. But he and all the other predecessors, they didn't do it once they had the opportunity to do it. President Donald Trump is a man of his word. He keeps his promise. This is a great promise. It's not just a campaign promise. This is an acknowledgement of objective fact. There's been only one nation in world history that has claimed Jerusalem as its capital, only one, and that is Israel. And it started several thousand years ago when King David founded Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And in the modern time, it's 1948 when Israel became a new modern state. It's always been Israel's capital, never been any other nation's capital in history. And it's operating today as Israel's capital. It's where the seat of government is. And so it's a recognition. You know, Donald Trump is a very strong-willed individual. He's going to focus on the objective, irrespective of the opposition. And that's why I like what he's done, because he had incredible opposition. Interestingly, within Congress... He actually has unity, believe it or not. Democrats and most Democrats and Republicans are united on this. It's very unusual. They're united behind Donald Trump. But when you move outside of the United States and you look at the world, the U.N., the Arab Muslim nations, some other European nations, they're all opposed to this move. Uh, But I think this is a unifying moment both for Israel and the United States, and it's a historic day. Uh, for this announcement to occur. Now, there was supposed to be a series of days of outrage in the Arab world. They're uh, making suggestions that, well, this will put an end to the peace talks, which haven't actually been moving forward for quite some time. What impact do you think this is likely to have on the so-called peace process um, that the Arab world has really been, the Palestinians in particular, has really been reluctant to engage in, even on this subject of a two-state solution? 
everyone wants peace. Certainly the Jews in Israel, all the people in Israel, they want peace. But the problem is there's no peace partner. Israel is the only partner that we have. There is no partner on the other side. The Palestinian Authority under Mahmoud Abbas, they're not a peace partner. The radical terrorist organization Hamas in Gaza, they're not a peace partner. So keeping this uh, embassy outside of Jerusalem since the beginning of Israel, back in 1948, and even not abiding by the 1995 Jerusalem Embassy Act, has that brought peace? No, absolutely not. Keeping it out for another 20 years, is that going to bring peace? No. You don't have peace by keeping the embassy out of Jerusalem when the people on the other side don't even want to recognize the Jewish right to exist, Mm -hmm. don't want to recognize Israel at all. You can't have a peace partner when you have somebody like that on the other side of the bargaining table. Now, it's we should make it clear that the embassy will be moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, but that's not a, a process that's going to happen immediately. It's a process that will take at minimum three years, finding a location, constructing a facility. Security is an issue. What should we expect over the next a couple of years in fulfilling this promise, making the pronouncement one thing. The president says he wants to make sure this is being funded. What should we expect? Well, Liberty Council and our ministry, Christians in Defense of Israel, we've been very much involved in getting this uh, process uh, moving and making sure that it's on the top burner. Of course, it's President Donald Trump who mentioned it in the campaign. But we need to make sure that it doesn't get derailed because he has already made the statement. He's going to follow through with it. But you're going to need to have now architects, you're going to have to have designs, you'll have to have construction, and then you'll have to have it open. We won't rest until it's open. Uh, There's going to be opposition all along the way. Uh, There's going to be efforts to try to defund this. But frankly, uh, amazingly, this is one issue uh, that has brought uh, Democrats and Republicans together. So I don't see a problem on the American side with regards to funding. And you know what? You know, the the other Arab Muslim nations that opposed it, I think they have to do that publicly because they've got radical factions uh, inside their countries. And, you know, when you look at the Israeli leadership, they're in favor of it. Um, The fact is to not recognize Israel uh, having the capital of Jerusalem and not moving our embassy to Jerusalem that is really a delegitimization of Israel, and frankly, at the end of the day, I think it's anti-Semitic. So this is a great move, and I think here's the other thing. By having this embassy act out there since 1995 and no president having the guts to actually do the right thing, uh, that doesn't help the peace process. That lets the other terrorist side of the equation know that we're not serious about our word. Mm-hmm. You know what? I think, if anything, this could help the peace process, because now they know... Donald Trump's not messing around. He's a man of his word. And if you don't play uh, right, he's going to just move forward. And he's already tried to meet with Mahmoud Abbas. And he's already found that this person's not a peace partner. Yeah, yeah. What impact do you think this is likely to have on the international community? Do you expect to see other nations uh, say the United States has moved its embassy we'll consider moving ours as well. Is this likely to have a, a positive impact, do you think, on the international community, those who um, might be less reluctant to move, given what the United States has now proclaimed it intends to do? Yeah, I think it will. I think, you know, this is putting America first. And America first is not America as an isolationist. It's America first here. But it's also America first and leading abroad. And that's exactly what this move has done. 
And I think there's going to be other nations that will follow suit. You know, there are some nations in the European Union and the U.N. that made opposition statements. But you know what? There's a lot of nations that support Israel. And with this move by the United States, that will embolden them. And I think we're going to see other embassies move to Israel, or move to Jerusalem, and recognize Jerusalem as the undivided capital of Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu spoke after the president spoke. There was an image imposed on the western wall of the United States flag and the Israeli flag. Uh, What's the general response in Israel to this pronouncement? Is there fear or is there relief that the United States has finally done what uh, presidents over the last several decades have said they intended to do? You know, I got an email from a professor friend of mine from Israel, and he was just so thankful for the United States in the stand. I think you have a lot of uh, thankfulness in Israel, particularly in the leadership. Uh, But this is the right thing to do. They know it. It's long overdue. And I think they are very thrilled with this uh, outward show of tangible support and recognition of Israel and Jerusalem as its capital. You know, some people say, well, Jerusalem is supposed to be a divided, shared capital. Well, can you imagine... Let's, let's take Washington, D.C. How do you share that capital with Mexico or Canada, and you put up two different governments? I mean, how do you do that? That's just a non-starter. And when you factor in the case that you have terrorists that want to share your capital, it's even worse. So the fact that even discussion about sharing the capital with the Palestinian Authority or other terrorists like Hamas which is recognized as a terrorist organization, is a non-starter and just nonsense. And anyone who spent any time on the ground figuring out what's going on over there knows uh, that uh, this is a good move and that uh, Jerusalem is the undivided, unified capital of Israel. Well, uh, many of us wondered if we ever see this day. We have now seen the president has made that pronouncement. He not only made the announcement, but he made it clear that he intends to see it through. So the the, Amer- the U.S. Embassy will be located in Jerusalem as soon as is uh, practicable. And I would imagine that will be in the next three to uh, three to four years, because that's just simply the amount of time it takes to. Uh, to find a location and do the construction and all of that. I appreciate the work that you are doing there to help yeah. move this along no and um, and look forward to celebrating at some point yeah, in the not-too-distant future uh, this promise fulfilled. Yeah, and, and I think that's true. We'll Bush or, or I should say Vice President Pence or any vice president goes over there, they're not going to have to stay in a hotel they're going to be able to stay in a very secured embassy uh, that they ought to be able to stay in. They'll be able to work in an embassy. Our our U.S. ambassador to Israel will be able to go to the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem. That's where all the seat of government is. Uh, He doesn't have to stay in. Well, we appear to be losing some of our audio, but I think we got the main point. Matt Staver, thank you so much for talking with us today. And again, I appreciate the work that you're doing there. Again, uh, Matt Staver is the founder and chairman of Liberty Council. He's the president of Christians in Defense of Israel and founder and chairman of Covenant uh, Journey on the president's uh, announcement earlier today that the American embassy will be located in Jerusalem, the eternal capital of Israel. I should have mentioned uh, as well that last May, approximately 60 Christian leaders 
leaders representing 60 million Christians across the country signed a letter that was delivered to President Trump calling on him to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem and recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. That has now been fulfilled. And as I mentioned at the top of our conversation, the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995 was passed by the Senate by a 93 to 5 vote and in the House by a 374 to 37 vote to move the U.S. Embassy in Israel to Jerusalem by requiring the, with the withholding of State Department funds if um, it was not moved. And that uh, uh, stood uh, under Presidents Clinton, Bush and Obama. But under President Trump, that will, in fact, be the case. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 37 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A moment ago, we talked with Matt Staver, the founder and chairman of Liberty Council, about the geopolitical implications of the announcement made by the president earlier today that the United States would recognize uh, Jerusalem as Israel's eternal capital and that the U.S. Embassy would be moving there. Now, it could be moving much more quickly than uh, will actually be the case, but this was a significant announcement. Well, here to talk with us about the implications from a biblical point of view is Dr. Gary Frazier. He's the founder and president of Discovery Missions. He's also the author, most recently, of Miracle of Israel, the shocking untold story of God's love for his people. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Georgine. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me on. I was listening to my good friend Matt Saver, and you chat a few moments ago, and this is re- really a truly uh, not only a historic, but a very exciting day. Well, the United States has, has remained a, a staunch ally of Israel, uh, and much to the criticism of uh, from a number of other nations. How significant from a, a, a perspective, a biblical perspective, was this announcement today in terms of the unfolding of God's plan as it relates to Israel? Well, you know, Georgine, in my book, Miracle of Israel, I write, of course, obviously, about the prophetic implications of the rebirth of Israel in 1948. And one of the things that we have to keep in mind is, and as we applaud the president on having the courage of making this move, is that Jerusalem itself is named over 3,000, about 300 times in the Bible itself. Now, there's not another religious book in the world where Jerusalem is ever even mentioned, not in the Koran, not in the Bhagavad Gita, not any of the other religious books in the world, only in the Word of God. And of course, King David. Uh, as you referenced earlier, I think, in your previous conversation with Matt, uh, 3,000 years ago, King David uh, made it the capital of the unified nation of Israel. And uh, Israel has always been recognized as the capital of Jerusalem. You know, we find in Genesis chapter 14 the very first mention of uh, the city of Jerusalem. And as I said, Jerusalem has been the holy city throughout these 3,000-plus years. And so it is really... A uh, decision that I think the president made, as you well know, there are many of us who've had the opportunity to spend time uh, on the president's uh, faith initiative. And a number of things, of course, have developed about this. But one of the things that's been important, I think, to know is that this president is one who is interested to know, first of all, what the Bible has to say about this subject, if it has anything Mm -hmm. to say, and it certainly does. Zechariah chapter 12 tells us that Jerusalem in the latter days will be a stumbling block to the nations of the world. We've been witnessing this now for a number of years. The big issue in the world is, can there be peace in the Middle East? Well, the truth of the matter is, as Matt mentioned a moment ago, there really is no peace partner. And while we're hearing all the, the, the 
the rhetoric from the Muslim Palestinian world and other Muslim nations concerning the impact of this. The truth of the matter is, is that this president realizes there's a biblical basis for this. Genesis 12, 3 tells us that God blesses those who bless the Jews. Whoever curses them, him will he curse. But also there's a historical aspect to it. Uh, and that is that this is the historical home of the Jewish people, and Jerusalem is the historical capital of the nation of Israel. But also there's a moral equation to this, and that is while the rhetoric on the from the far extremist Muslim community is, is that, you know, Israel doesn't have a right to exist. They've never agreed to that. Uh, they've never, uh, th- their goal has always been, as they've stated over and over and over again, to destroy the Jewish people, to totally annihilate them, to finish what Hitler failed to do. And so, really, this there's never been an ethnicity that has been targeted for complete extermination like the Jewish people. But also, there's a political equation to this, and that is that it's the right thing to do. The time is right. It takes courage to do this. And in in the face of all the threats, there will never be a quote-unquote good time to make this decision. So I applaud this president for, for understanding the biblical ramification, understanding the history surrounding it, and uh, making a, a positive political decision that I think in the long term uh, will definitely prove to be the right thing. Now, we know that the a day of rage or days of rage have uh, been uh, announced as a response to the president's announcement. Uh, this, I suppose, is not altogether surprising, but um, how does that play into what has essentially already been the case, uh, that the existence of Israel has been called into question by its so-called uh, partners in the peace process? Um, will this accelerate, perhaps, um, the enmity between these nations, or, or how do you see that uh, playing out? Well, first of all, I don't think there is a Muslim alive in the Middle East that does not understand that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. And secondly, I don't think there's any of the leadership that is of the Palestinian Authority, the Hamas, that does not recognize that this day was coming. Now, they can threaten, and they may uh, try to do some things. I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, Discovery Cruises and Tours is a ministry that we have where we uh, facilitate church group travel to Israel from churches all across America. We have a, one of our groups is in the land right now, and I just spoke to them earlier today, and they said they saw absolutely, in their traveling around the city of Jerusalem, they saw absolutely nothing but celebrations taking place among the Jewish people. A number of my guides have sent me messages talking about the joyous celebrations taking place. Now, do we anticipate the Palestinians and, and Hamas and so forth doing some stuff? Yes, but they've been doing this all along. And I will tell you, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, they're more than capable of handling any issues that may be developed as a result of this. What concerns me more than the attitude of the Palestinians, which I would expect, is the foolish responses that are being taken by people such, first of all, as the Pope, who said things should stay as the status quo. Yeah. This, this guy is just out of touch with reality. And the second thing is, is that I expected the EU to come out and say what they did, because frankly, uh, as well as Theresa May, the Prime Minister of England, because I will tell you that the European Union, and Britain in particular, as well as France and so forth, they are terrified of the Muslim population that exists in their own countries. So they're more concerned about their own well-being and their own safety, what might happen as a result of this, than really that than really the uh, danger or threat 
to the Jewish people in Israel. Uh, having been to Israel now over 150 times over the last 40-some-odd years, I can tell you that the Israeli Defense Force is well able and capable to handle whatever may come up. Well, um, we certainly will continue to watch very closely, and you're absolutely right. Uh, the kind of violent response that's been uh, threatened is no different than what we've been seeing up to this point right. for for lesser yeah. reasons. Now, your book, um, Miracle of Israel, how can our listeners find the book? Well, they can, first of all, order that on Amazon, uh, or they can order it at com, either place. And uh, basically, it's a culmination of, as I said, more than 40 years of traveling there, and just watching the hand of God in history. You know, so many people don't realize that God very, is very much alive and well and, and, and very much at work and involved in the affairs of the world, and particularly with Israel, because Israel is a major player in God's eternal plan for the ages. And I do believe that we are living in the closing days in the history of the world as we know it. No man knows the time, how much... Uh, or when these events are going to transpire, but we see the world stage being set in a way that we've never seen before. And uh, so I I really do believe that Israel, and and by the way, understanding Israel's role in these last days, is the real key uh, to understand where we are on God's prophetic timetable and what we can expect to see happen. So it's about 230 pages, easy read, love for people to get that, and appreciate the opportunity to talk with you tonight. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. Again, uh, Dr. Gary Frazier is the founder and president of Discovery Missions and the author of Miracle of Israel, the shocking untold story of God's love for his people, published by New Leaf Press. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, today is December 6th, and December 6th marks St. Nicholas Day. And I thought uh, we'd mark the beginning of the Christmas season by telling the story of Santa Claus's namesake. Uh, I should remark that, historically speaking, there's not much we actually know about Nicholas. He's one of the most popular saints in the Greek and Latin churches. His existence isn't attested by any historical document. All we can say is that he was probably the Bishop of Myra, and that's near uh, somewhere in Turkey sometime in the 300s. But this is where he sort of enters the scene Um, of the Christmas celebration here in the West. Well, that said, there are, of course, many legends about Nicholas. And since those have influenced people throughout history, for good or for ill, and uh, they uh, likely illustrate something about the historical man, they're fair game for a publication devoted to Christian history. So I went to Christianity Today to see what they could tell us about St. Nicholas on this St. Nicholas Day. Well, supposedly Nicholas was born to a wealthy family in Patara, Lycia. His parents died and he inherited a considerable sum of money, but he kept none of it. In the most famous story about his life, he threw bags of gold through the windows of three girls about to be forced into lives of prostitution. At least that's the most common version of that story. There are others, including an excessively grim one where the three girls are beheaded by an innkeeper and pickled in a tub of brine until Nicholas resurrects them. We're not going with that version. Well, after a couple of miracles, he's sometimes called Nicholas the Wonder Worker, performed while he was still a boy, Nicholas was chosen by the people of Myra to be their new bishop. But it wasn't long before... 
uh, the Diocletian and Maximum, I should say, say Maximian, uh, began their persecutions of Christians and the new bishop was imprisoned. When Constantine became emperor, Nicholas was released with countless others and returned to his preaching only to find a new threat. Uh, Arianism, according to one biographer writing five centuries after Nicholas's death, thanks to the teaching of St. Nicholas, the metropolis of Myra alone were uh, was untouched by the filth of the Arian heresy, which is firmly rejected as the death-dealing poison. That's a quote. Other biographers claim that Nicholas attacked the heresy of Arius, who denied the full divinity of cross of Christ, rather, in a much more personal way. He traveled to the Council of Nicaea. He slapped Arius in the face, as the story goes, and this should be taken as fantasy because there are pretty good records of the council, and Nicholas isn't mentioned, nor was the slapping. Uh, the other bishops of Nicaea were shocked at such rude behavior, relieved him as a bishop, but then Jesus and Mary appeared next to him, and they quickly recanted. We're talking about the legend of St. Nicholas, about whom we know very little. That's the questionable legend of Nicholas, but not the end of the story. Well, even by the reign of Justinian, that's about 565, Nicholas was famous and the emperor dedicated a church in Constantinople to him. By the 900s, a Greek wrote, the West as well as the East acclaims and glorifies him. Wherever there are people, his name is revered and churches are built in his honor. All Christian reverence uh, his memory and call upon his protection. The West became even more interested when his relics were taken from Myra to Bari, Italy in 1087. Uh, He's said to have been represented by medieval artists more frequently than any saint but Mary, and nearly 400 churches were dedicated in his honor in England alone during the late Middle Ages. With such a popularity, his um, his legends inevitably became intertwined with others. In Germanic countries, for example, it sometimes became hard to tell where the legend of Nicholas began and that of Woden or Odin ended. Somewhere along the line, probably tied to the... uh, gold-giving story, people began giving presents in his name on his feast day. When the Reformation came along, his following disappeared in all the Protestant countries except Holland, where his legend continued as Sinterklaas. Martin Luther, for example, replaced this uh, bearer of gifts with the Christ child, or in German, uh, Christkindl. Uh, over the years, that became repronounced Chris Kringle, and ironically is now considered another name for Santa Claus. Well, I tell this story because, or series of stories, because this is actually uh, St. Nicholas Day. The truth is, we don't know a whole lot about him, what's factual and what's not. What's most important, however, is who actually knows your name and knows your story. Now, is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Now, I might try to tell the story, for example, of the life and history of James Blend. I might get some facts correct, others not so much. I might misunderstand certain uh, details of his life, certain events. But when your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that means God not only knows your name, but he knows your story. Now, all of us have a flawed story. And the beauty of having your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, it means that you are no longer relying on your own story, your own goodness, uh, your own ability to work your way into God's favor, but you have recognized your utter dependence upon Christ, and you have declared your uh, your allegiance to him and your faith and belief in him. And your name is written there because you have been taken on the righteousness of Christ. 
So St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, whoever he was or is, we may not fully understand or appreciate, but if his name, the correct name in the right period, time period, is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, doesn't really matter what we know, think, or what we think we know. I'm grateful that my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, not because of my merit, because what I've done or failed to do, but because I have believed in Christ and through the grace of God and his love, his merit has been given to me. I've been given a robe of righteousness that I did not and cannot earn. And so the story of St. Nicholas, it might be interesting, but like all of our stories, it matters little unless it's written in the right place. And the one whose opinion matters and whose understanding of history and time is always accurate, gets it right. I wonder if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Something to think about this Christmas season. Tomorrow on the program, we are going to talk with Johnny Moore. He's the author of The Martyr's Oath, Living for the Jesus They Are Willing to Die For. He looks at the lives of those whose lives were taken from them because of their Christian faith. What motivated them to cling to him even when their lives were threatened? Well, that same motivation ought to be ours as we purpose and resolve to live faithfully for him. So we're going to talk about that with Johnny Moore tomorrow on the program. And then on Friday, we're going to have some fun Friday holiday fun. So I hope you can uh, can join us. And again, I apologize for the roughness of my voice. As you might notice, it fluctuates throughout the two hours of the program as I'm still struggling with a very serious cough that robs me of the clarity that was once mine in speaking and singing, but yet I persevere. I want to thank uh, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day, as painful as it may have been. Hey, have a great night. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow, and who knows, I might actually sound a little bit better. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.